So I would ask uh, if you uh, are able, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word and turn to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 7, and then we will uh, turn to chapter 9. Chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then chapter uh, 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That, but in the, late, in the latter time he has made glorious the ways of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, Tumult, battle tumult, and every garment ro rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Please be seated. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading and hearing of his holy and infallible word. Well, last week I filled the pulpit uh, for the 15th time. Uh, in this series on the names of God. And I think uh, that uh, previously none of the messages have been any closer together you know, than like several months. So uh, this is a little different, the pastor being uh, gone for about three weeks. Uh, so last week we explored the name Yahweh Shammah. God is there. Uh, we looked at this name as a promise from God. Uh, and now this week we will... Uh, bring that to a uh, conclusion as we look at the fulfillment. Uh, so for uh, me to, again, fill the pulpit two weeks in a row uh, does make a little bit of sense as these two names, uh, Yahweh uh, Shama uh, and the name for today uh, are very woven together. Uh, as a bit of review for uh, either those that weren't here uh, or those that have a short attention span, uh, yeah, we found the uh, name Yahweh Shammah in the uh, very last verse of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, we learned that Ezekiel uh, rendered uh, his prophecies, the, the prophecies that were truly uh, the word of God as he sent down uh, represented as man as his representative, uh, that they were spoken 
when, when Israel was very shattered uh, as a people uh, and they were scattered uh, as a nation uh, due to that uh, unrelented misbehavior uh, and their blasphemy uh, against the Lord God Yahweh, they once again found themselves in exile. Uh, they were dispatched to other nations, but many were especially concentrated uh, in captivity in Babylon. Uh, as they uh, continued to rebel, uh, then Yahweh uh, later extended his judgment upon them uh, to include the destruction of Jerusalem uh, and the uh, obliteration of the temple. Uh, this then you know, led the people, uh, or th this then uh, was left the people uh, without a place that uh, signified uh, the presence of their God, Yahweh. Uh, the people of Israel uh, really did suffer uh, under uh, the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, they were physically, uh, emotionally, and spiritually crippled. Uh, so here we are. Y Yahweh had issued uh, his judgment uh, as appropriate uh, to his namesake, appropriate uh, to his nature as the only one true God, uh, as the one of uh, pure righteousness who could not allow uh, sinful behavior uh, to continually be perpetrated by his people. And they received his wrath. Uh, so 25 years or so uh, after he allowed this captivity, and about 14 years after uh, the temple lay in ruins, again, true to his name, true to his holy name, uh, true to his righteous character, God now wants to lead his people into repentance. Uh, he wants to encourage their uh, obedience uh, so as to secure their restoration uh, and redemption. Uh, he wants to fulfill his covenantal promise to be their ever-present God. Uh, he wants to have them uh, fully experience his presence and to fully know his glory. Uh, so last week, uh, we saw this uh, promise laid out uh, in the last uh, part of Ezekiel. It's a wonderful declaration that God would gather his people, uh, that he would change them, uh, that he would uh, give them uh, a new heart, put his spirit within them, and cause them uh, to observe his holy ordinances. You know, it's uh, quite a great love uh, that he has for his people. Uh, it's through his grace and mercy uh, that he uh, showers this upon uh, the nation of Israel. And so, uh, although uh, through Ezekiel, uh, God uh, then declares when there will be a day of a new city of Zion, a new uh, Jerusalem, a city with a new temple, uh, a place called Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. And the focus there is the presence of God and his everlasting glory. <coughs> so this name, uh, or so the name Yahweh Shammah, uh, as a prophecy of Ezekiel, uh, certainly seems a most uh, fitting name uh, with which Old Testament revelation appears to climax. But where does it go from there? You know, what does the New Covenant, the New Testament, tell us of this fulfillment of the name Yahweh Shammah. 
We begin the New Testament, I think everyone knows, with chapter 1 of Matthew. Uh, here is the wonderful story of the birth of Christ. Uh, Joseph, from the line of David, is told by an angel of God that his betrothed wife Mary uh, would bear a son who had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, his name was to be Jesus, for we are told he would save his people from their sins. So with this, the birth of Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah as we just read in our scripture text for today, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel translates God with us. So, isn't it pretty incredible that the end of this period, if we call uh, the Old Testament, there's this prof prophecy of promising God's abiding presence with the Lord is there. Uh, then, at the beginning of the New Testament period, we have the wonderful promise that in Jesus, we now have God's presence abiding in a physical form. <clears throat> the presence of his, uh, uh, the uh, this would be the presence of his glory as God with us. In short, Jesus reveals and he fulfill, fulfills the name Yahweh Shammah. Now if I stopped here, that's the crux, this would be the shortest sermon ever from this pulpit, but of course I'm going to be going on. Uh, but the essence really of this passage that we see in the first chapter of Matthew and the historical event that it records isn't merely the birth of a baby. Now, the essence, the real crux is that God became a baby. God was in the manger. In other verbiage, we read of this, uh, this uh, in a key prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So keep in mind here that it says the child is born, but the son is given. And there's something else I think that seems uh, at first rather odd, but after thoughtful reasoning, it does make perfect sense. The son, uh, and the son that was given existed before the child was even born. Yes, sounds odd, but not from what scripture. You see, the Virgin Mary gave birth to a child, but the child actually existed before the Virgin even became pregnant. Therefore, the son was given and not born. Looking back at Hebrews uh, chapter 10, uh, verses 5 and 5 through 7, we are privy to a conversation between uh, God and the, God the Father and Christ the Son. In it, they talk about Christ coming to earth as man to do the Father's will. And it reads, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
Jesus came not only to do the Father's will, but also to represent God the Father so that we would know what it's like to have God with us, to have him present with us as the name Emmanuel proclaims, God with us. In the first chapter of Colossians, verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then later in verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the very representation and likeness of God, sent to us to show us his beauty and majesty as the eternal king. <clears throat> Jesus Christ did not make his debut, uh, his first appearance on that first Christmas morning in Bethlehem. Jesus existed before the creation. We are told he was in the beginning with God. In fact, or even in addition, John uh, chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So it means he was there from time before. Emmanuel, Jesus, the Son of God, was there from the start. Even when we look back at the book of Genesis in chapter 1 verse 26, we read that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Thus referencing the preference of Christ along with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the beginning. When John opens uh, the writing of his gospel, the word that he is speaking of here is none other than Jesus Christ. And we are told that he dwelt with us. Now imagine the depth of this reality. Uh, the Word, who is God, came down to dwell with us, and he did so as Jesus Christ. And John goes on to say with terminology that I think causes us to uh, think back to some of the Old Testament appearances of God when he says, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Ezekiel, we saw God's glory manifested as it filled the temple like a thick cloud. This glory refers to God's revelation of himself to us. It signifies his presence and his holiness. So John declares that God's glory dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. And we can see and know that presence, that glory as Jesus demonstrated God's grace and his truth. God's grace speaks of his loving kindness. His truth speaks of his holiness. Now one place that we see these qualities come together uh, is when the scribes and the Pharisees 
bring Jesus to a woman uh, who is caught in adultery. They cite the law's requirement that she be stoned. And then they ask Jesus uh, what he would do. Jesus stoops and draws in the sand. And to their, I believe, disappointment, uh, asks whoever was without sin to cast the first stone. Uh, they were, I think, kind of zapped. Uh, when the hostile crowd then disappeared, Jesus asks the woman about the absence of accusers and then declares, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. By offering forgiveness, Jesus manifests God's grace. By demanding she sin no more, he embodied God's truth. The simple point is that Jesus embodied the presence of God. So when we see Jesus, we see the Father. For he, has, for he and the Father are one. Jesus is Yahweh Shammah. God's presence is not known in a building or a specific location, but in the person of his Son. The abiding presence of holy God is experienced in relationship with Jesus Christ. Some people follow the revelation of God's presence this far, but they fail to make the next logical step. In the book of Colossians, uh, Paul was dealing with a growing heresy uh, that is similar in nature to uh, the so-called uh, New Age emphasis of our recent days. Uh, people then were interested, as some nowadays are interested in, knowing the uh, so-called force behind the universe. You know, one of the popular terms of speculation used in those days gone by was the Greek word pleroma, which translates fullness. Paul grabs this term and provides it with a new understanding. After declaring that Jesus was the Redeemer, the image of the invisible God, that Jesus uh, the, the author of creation and the head of the church universal. Uh, Paul then makes an astounding declaration in Colossians 1 verse 19 when he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This word fullness in this context translates exactly to the Greek word pleroma. During the time that Christ was on the earth, man of his time came to know and experience the full presence of the holy God Yahweh as manifested by Jesus. In God's presence uh, was seen uh, in, in if God's presence was seen uh, in the uh, spectacular revelation of the Old Testament, uh, such as the uh, burning bush uh, and the pillar of fire, etc. Uh, and then his presence was manifest in Jesus, where we find the manifestation of his presence today. The clear answer is scripture, is that God wants, the, the clear answer of scripture is that God wants to manifest his presence in the world through his people. If we look further at God, John's gospel in chapter 16, we have Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. He tells them not to despair. Uh, he says that his departure will actually work for their advantage because he will send the Holy Spirit to indwell in them. 
The Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus says he will guide the disciples into all truth and enable them to pray in his name. Then in chapter 17, which is sometimes called the high priestly prayer, Jesus begins by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this eternal life, that they know, and this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. His prayer then focuses on his disciples and those who had come to know Christ through their witness in the centuries to come. He prays that the Father would guard his followers while they are in the world. He prays they would have a full measure of his joy, that they would be sanctified in his truth. But what's the bottom line of this prayer? Uh, verse 18 uh, gives us the first clue. It says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Why did God send Jesus into the world? He sent him to manifest his glory, to show his presence. And, to, and, and so now then this uh, uh, hits home in verse 22 when Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. God's glory, his powerful presence, is now manifest in us, his followers, through Jesus Christ. Now going back again to Colossians chapter 1, when Paul declared that Jesus was the full expression of God, you'll discover that in that same context, Paul talks about the church as Christ's body. The, this church is prepared by God to reveal a mystery which has been hidden from the ages past but is now manifest in his saints. Colossians 1, verse 27 reads, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The indwelling presence of Christ manifested in us through the Holy Spirit is what enables us to reveal God's presence today. What a marvelous truth it is that God wants to indwell his people in such a way that Yahweh Shama, the Lord is there, would be seen in us today. He did this <clears throat> when he brought Jesus Christ to dwell in us as Emmanuel, God with us. Paul declares this further in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
In that same context, Paul deals with the Corinthians using gifts of service to the Lord God, Yahweh. He tells them there will be judgment for the quality of their service, which is supposed to be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, verse 19, he reminds them once again that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And in this instance, he is also forced to bring rebuke for their sin of immorality. He reminds them, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You know, statistics tell us that uh, in general, uh, the incidence of divorce and sexual sin in the church at large is similar to that of the public at large. You know, thanks be to God that we have indicators that as a denomination, the Bible Presbyterian Church fares a bit better. Uh, but we are often also reminded that a so-called 20% or likely even lower of the people uh, in an average local congregation do 80% or maybe even likely higher percent of the ministry work. Too much is at stake to allow this imbalance to go unabated. Our holiness in our service is not simply a matter of do's and don'ts that some may say are strikingly out of date uh, in present day society. Not so. What is at stake is the purity and ministry of a people in whom the presence of God is being displayed to a hurting and needy world, a world that is also very quick to criticize. If we desire that the Spirit of God would you know, move upon our nation, that we must set a higher standard of holiness and service among the people of God who are destined to embody God's presence. We are his people, we are his temple, and we are present in him. It cannot be said any more simply. Now, the truth, this truth alone should greatly uh, impact us. It should influence how we spend our time, our money, our energy. It must have an effect on the way we do business in the workplace or school, how we treat our families, how we engage our neighbors. If the world at large is to see the presence of the true holy God, it will be in and through us. But there's yet another chapter to the fulfillment seen in these two names. Jesus himself promised his disciples there would be a conclusive stage related to God's presence. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, as he is preparing his disciples for his uh, departure, he declared that in his father's house there were many dwelling places. He said that with his leaving, he was going to prepare a place for his followers. And he closes in John uh, 14, verse 3, saying to his disciples, Where I am, you may be also. It is clear this is a reference to the new Zion to Yahweh Shammah, the God is there, and to Emmanuel, God with us. 
At the end of the high priestly prayer, we see another wonderful truth about God's glory. Listen uh, to the last request of Jesus in John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So yes, children of God, we will be in his presence, and we will behold his glory. Psalm 46 further locks this in uh, as, as, we, <clears throat> as we look forward to an ideal city where God's presence uh, is to be known. Verses 4 and 5 tell us, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The theologian John Gill uh, back in the 1700s in his commentary offered that this river refers to the spirit and his graces which are compared to a well and rivers of living water in the exercise of which the saints have much joy and peace. He went on to add the streams of this river are eternal election, the covenant of grace with its blessings and promises the provision and mission of Christ as a Savior and redemption by man by Him, justification, pardon, adoption, regeneration, perseverance in grace, and eternal life. And he then said regarding God being in the midst of her that this is the church and people of God, not merely by His essence, power, and providence as He in the midst as He is in the midst of the world but by his gracious presence. Hebrews chapter 11, the writer here tells us that faith, that, that through faith and promise, Abraham was traveling to a place of inheritance. And he was looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God. Then the next chapter, the writer contrasts New Zion to the blazing fire on the mount at the giving on the mountain at the giving of the Ten Commandments, he also uh, declares in verses 22, 23, and 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the Judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Ezekiel's prophecy will, ultimate, will be ultimately fulfilled when death is absorbed by victory, and the new Jerusalem is inhabited by God's redeemed people. No one describes the scene quite like John does in Revelation. <clears throat> Chapter 21, uh, verse 13 reads, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, 
adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then verse 11 and, and uh, 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And verses 22, 23. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Ezekiel's temple, Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there, will not be constructed by human hands. It will not be a temple of stone and mortar, but it is a temple, the temple of the new Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, which is the Lord God Almighty and his son, the Lamb. So yes, brothers and sisters, we do have the fulfillment of Yahweh's covenantal promise of his everlasting presence. His mighty glory is with us. And so we will truly enjoy him forever and ever. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your grace and mercy, thankful for your many blessings. We are thankful for your holy and infallible word, the word that blesses us with the truth of your names in ways that help us come to know you better. Lord, we want to fully know you, uh, to have you uh, in our presence as children uh, of your covenant. We want to magnify you uh, in all your glory. And Lord, what glory we see, that greatness that we see uh, in your name, Emmanuel, God with us, uh, the son uh, you gave as a little babe, as Jesus Christ, the one who saves his people. And so, Father, Lord God, we submit knowing you as Emmanuel, knowing that you are with us, knowing that uh, in your kingdom that the light of your Lamb shines your glory upon us forever and ever. We pray here and now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.